Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading another chapter from Thoreau's Walton. So lie down. Close your eyes and let me read you a story. The Ponds Sometimes, having had a surfeit of human society and gossip, 
and worn out all my village friends. I rambled still further westward than I habitually dwell, into yet more unfrequented parts of the town, to fresh woods and pastures new. Or, while the sun was setting, made my supper of huckleberries and blueberries on Fairhaven Hill, and laid up a store for several days. The fruits do not yield their true flavor to the purchaser of them, nor to him who raises them for the market. There is but one way to obtain it, yet few take that way. If you would know the flavor of huckleberries, ask the cowboy or the partridge. It is a vulgar error to suppose that you have tasted huckleberries who never plucked them. A huckleberry never reaches Boston. They have not been known there since they grew on her three hills. The ambrosial and essential part of the fruit is lost with the bloom, which is rubbed off in the market cart, and they become mere provender. As long as eternal justice reigns, not one innocent huckleberry can be transported thither from the country's hills. Occasionally, after my hoeing was done for the day, I joined some impatient companion who had been fishing on the pond since morning, as silent and motionless as a duck or floating leaf. And after practicing various kinds of philosophy, had concluded commonly, by the time I arrived, that he belonged to the ancient sect of Coenobites. There was one older man, an excellent fisher and skilled in all kinds of woodcraft, who was pleased to look upon my house as a building erected for the convenience of fishermen. And I was equally pleased when he sat in my doorway to arrange his lines. Once in a while we sat together on the pond, he at one end of the boat and I at the other. But not many words passed between us, for he had grown deaf in his later years. But he occasionally hummed a psalm which harmonized well enough with my philosophy. Our intercourse was thus altogether one of unbroken harmony, far more pleasing to remember than if it had been carried on by speech. When, as was commonly the case, I had none to commune with, I used to raise the echoes by striking with a paddle on the side of my boat, filling the surrounding woods with circling and dilating sound, stirring them up as the keeper of a menagerie his wild beasts, until I elicited a growl from every wooded vale and hillside. In warm evenings, I frequently sat in the boat playing the flute and saw the perch, which I seemed to have charmed, hovering around me, and the moon travelling over the ribbed bottom, which was strewed with the wrecks of the forest. Formerly I had come to this pond adventurously, from time to time, in dark summer nights, with a companion, and making a fire close to the water's edge, which we thought attracted the fishes. We caught pouts with a bunch of worms strung on a thread, and when we had done, far in the night, threw the burning brands high into the air like skyrockets, which coming down into the pond were quenched with a loud hissing, and we were suddenly groping in total darkness. Through this, whistling a tune, we took our way to the haunts of men again, but now I had made my home by the shore. Sometimes after staying in a village parlor till the family had all retired, I have returned to the woods, and partly with a view to the next day's dinner, spent the hours of midnight fishing from a boat by moonlight, 
serenaded by owls and foxes, and hearing from time to time the creaking note of some unknown bird close at hand. These experiences were very memorable and valuable to me, anchored in forty feet of water and twenty or thirty rods from the shore, surrounded sometimes by thousands of small perch and shiners, dimpling the surface with their tails in the moonlight, and communicating by a long flaxen line with mysterious nocturnal fishes, which had their dwelling forty feet below, or sometimes dragging sixty feet of line about the pond as I drifted in the gentle night breeze, now and then feeling a slight vibration along it, indicative of some life prowling about its extremity, of dull, uncertain, blundering purpose there, and slow to make up its mind. At length, you slowly rise, pulling hand over hand, some horned pout squeaking and squirming to the upper air. It was very strange, especially in dark nights, when your thoughts had wandered to the vast and cosmogonal themes in other spheres, to feel this faint jerk, which came to interrupt your dreams and link you to nature again. It seemed as if I might next cast my line upward into the air, as well as downward into this element, which was scarcely more dense. Thus I caught two fishes, as it were with one hook. The scenery of Walden is on a humble scale, and though very beautiful, does not approach to grandeur, nor can it much concern one who has not long frequented it or lived by its shore. Yet this pond is so remarkable for its depth and purity as to merit a particular description. It is a clear and deep green well, half a mile long and a mile and three quarters in circumference, and contains about sixty-one and a half acres a perennial spring in the midst of pine and oak woods, without any visible inlet or outlet, except by the clouds and evaporation. The surrounding hills rise abruptly from the water to the height of 40 to 80 feet, though on the southeast and east they attain to about 100 and 150 feet respectively, within a quarter and a third of a mile. They are exclusively woodland. All our Concord waters have two colours at least, one when viewed at a distance, and another, more proper, close at hand. The first depends more on the light and follows the sky. In clear weather, in summer, they appear blue at a little distance, especially if agitated, and at a great distance all appear alike. In stormy weather, they are sometimes of a dark slate colour. The sea, however, is said to be blue one day and green another, without any perceptible change in the atmosphere. I have seen our river, when the landscape, being covered with snow, both water and ice were almost as green as grass. Some consider blue to be the colour of pure water, whether liquid or solid, but looking directly down into our waters from a boat, there seem to be of a very different colours. Walden is blue at one time, green at another, even from the same point of view. Lying between the earth and the heavens, it partakes of the colour of both. Viewed from a hilltop, it reflects the colour of the sky, but near at hand it is of a yellowish tint next the shore, where you can see the sand. Then a light green, which gradually deepens to a uniform dark green, 
in the body of the pond. In some lights viewed even from a hilltop, it is of a vivid green next to the shore. Some have referred this to the reflection of the verdure, but it is equally green there against the railroad sandbank. And in the spring, before the leaves are expanded, and it may be simply the result of the prevailing blue mixed with the yellow of the sand, such is the color of its iris. This is that portion also where in the spring, the ice being warmed by the heat of the sun reflected from the bottom and also transmitted through the earth, melts first and forms a narrow canal about the still frozen middle. Like the rest of our waters, when much agitated in clear weather, so that the surface of the waves may reflect the sky at the right angle, or because there is more light mixed with it, it appears at a little distance of a darker blue than the sky itself, and at such a time, being on its surface and looking with divided vision, so as to see the reflection, I have discerned a matchless and indescribable light blue, such as watered or changeable silks and sword blades suggest, more cerulean than the sky itself, alternating with the original dark green on the opposite sides of the waves, which last appeared but muddy in comparison. It is a vitreous greenish blue, as I remember it, like those patches of the winter sky seen through cloud vistas in the west before sundown. Yet a single glass of its water held up to the light is as colourless as an equal quantity of air. It is well known that a large plate of glass will have a green tint, owing, as the makers say, to its body but a small piece of the same will be colourless. How large a body of Walden water would be required to reflect a green tint, I have never proved. The water of our river is black, or a very dark brown to one looking directly down on it, and like that of most ponds, imparts to the body of one bathing in it a yellowish tinge. But this water is of such crystalline purity that the body of the bather appears of an alabaster whiteness, still more unnatural, which, as the limbs are magnified and distorted withal, produces a monstrous effect, making fit studies for Michelangelo. The water is so transparent that the bottom can be easily discerned at the depth of twenty-five or thirty feet. Paddling over it, you may see, many feet beneath the surface, the schools of perch and shiners, perhaps only an inch long, yet the former easily distinguished by their transverse bars, and you think that they must be ascetic fish that find subsistence there. Once in the winter many years ago, when I had been cutting holes through the ice in order to catch pickerel, as I stepped ashore I tossed my axe back onto the ice, but as if some evil genius had directed it, it slid four or five rods directly into one of the holes where the water was twenty-five feet deep. Out of curiosity, I lay down on the ice and looked through the hole until I saw the axe a little on one side standing on its head, with its helver erect and gently swaying to and fro with the pulse of the pond. And there it might have stood erect and swaying till, in the course of time, the handle rotted off if I had not disturbed it. Making another hole directly over it with an ice chisel which I had, and cutting down the longest birch which I could find in the neighborhood with my knife, 
I made a slip noose, which I attached to its end, and letting it down carefully, passed it over the knob of the handle, and drew it by a line along the birch, and so pulled the axe out again. The shore is composed of a belt of smooth, rounded white stones like paving stones, excepting one or two short sand beaches, and is so steep that in many places a single leap will carry you into water over your head. And were it not for its remarkable transparency, that would be the last to be seen of its bottom till it rose on the opposite side. Some think it is bottomless. It is nowhere muddy, and a casual observer would say, that there were no weeds at all in it, and of noticeable plants, except in the little meadows recently overflowed, which do not properly belong to it. A closer scrutiny does not detect a flag nor a bulrush, nor even a lily, yellow or white, but only a few small heart leaves, and perhaps a water target or two, all which, however, bather might not perceive and these plants are clean and bright like the element they grow in. The stones extend a rod or two into the water, and then the bottom is pure sand, except in the deepest parts, where there is usually a little sediment, probably from the decay of the leaves, which have been wafted onto it so many successive falls, and a bright green weed is brought up on anchors, even in midwinter. We have... One other pond, just like this, White Pond, in Nine Acre Corner, about two and a half miles westerly. But though I am acquainted with most of the ponds within a dozen miles of this centre, I do not know a third of this pure and well-like character. Successive nations perchance have drunk at it, admired and fathomed it, and passed away, and still its water is green and pellucid as ever. Not an intermitting spring. Perhaps on that spring morning when Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden Weldon Pond was already in existence. And even then, breaking up in a gentle spring rain, accompanied with mist and a southerly wind, and covered with myriads of ducks and geese, which had not heard of the fall, when still such pure lakes suffused them. Even then it had commenced to rise and fall, and had clarified its waters, and coloured them of the hue they now wear and obtained a patent of heaven to be the only Walden Pond in the world and distiller of celestial dews. Who knows in how many unremembered nations' literatures this has been the Castalian Fountain, or what nymphs presided over it in the Golden Age. It is a gem of the first water which Concord wears in her coronet. Yet perchance the first who came to this well have left some trace of their footprints. I have been surprised to detect encircling the pond, even where a thick wood has just been cut down on the shore, a narrow shelf-like path in the steep hillside, alternating, rising and falling, approaching and receding from the water's edge, as old, probably, as the race of man here, worn by the feet of aboriginal hunters, and still from time to time unwittingly trodden by the present occupiers of the land. This is particularly distinct to one standing on the middle of the pond in winter, just after a light snow has fallen, appearing as a clear, undulating white line, unobscured by weeds and twigs, 
and very obvious a quarter of a mile off in many places, where in summer it is hardly distinguishable close at hand. The snow reprints it, as it were, in clear, white, type, alto relievio. The ornamented grounds of villas, which will one day be built here, may still preserve some trace of this. The pond rises and falls, but whether regularly or not, and within what period, nobody knows, though, as usual, many pretend to know. It is commonly higher in the winter and lower in the summer, though not corresponding to the general wet and dryness. I can remember when it was a foot or two lower, and also when it was at least five feet higher than when I lived by it. There is a narrow sandbar running into it, with very deep water on one side, on which I helped boil a kettle of chowder, some six rods from the main shore, about the year 1824, which it has not been possible to do for 25 years. And, on the other hand, my friends used to listen with incredulity when I told them that a few years later I was accustomed to fish from a boat in a secluded cove in the woods, 15 rods from the only shore they knew which place was long since converted into a meadow. But the pond has risen steadily for two years, and now, in the summer of 52, it's just five feet higher than when I lived there, or as high as it was 30 years ago, and fishing goes on again in the meadow. This makes a difference of level at the outside of six or seven feet, and yet the water shed by the surrounding hills is insignificant in amount and this overflow must be referred to causes which affect the deep springs. The same summer the pond has begun to fall again. It is remarkable that this fluctuation, whether periodical or not, appears thus to require many years for its accomplishment. I have observed one rise in the part of two falls, and I expect that a dozen or fifteen years hence the water will again be as low as I have ever known it. Flint's Pond, a mile eastward, allowing for the disturbance occasioned by its inlets and outlets, and the smaller intermediate ponds, also, sympathize with Walden, and recently attained their greatest height at the same time with the latter. The same is true, as far as my observation goes, of White Pond. This rise and fall of Walden, at long intervals, serves this use at least the water standing at this great height for a year or more, though it makes it difficult to walk round it, kills the shrubs and trees which have sprung up about its edge since the last rise. Pitch pines, birches, alders, aspens and others, and falling again, leaves an unobstructed shore, for unlike many ponds and all waters which are subject to a daily tide, its shore is cleanest when the water is lowest. On the side of the pond next my house, a row of pitch pines, 15 feet high, has been killed and tipped over as if by a lever, and thus a stop put to their encroachments, and their size indicates how many years have elapsed since the last rise to this height. By this fluctuation, the pond asserts its title to a shore, and thus the shore is shorn, and the trees cannot hold it by right of possession. These are the lips of the lake on which no beard grows. It licks its chaps from time to time. When the water is at its height, the alders, willows, and maples 
send forth a mass of fibrous red roots, several feet long from all sides of their stems in the water, and to the height of three or four feet from the ground, in the effort to maintain themselves, and I have known the high blueberry bushes about the shore, which commonly produce no fruit, bear an abundant crop under these circumstances. Some have been puzzled to tell how the shore became so regularly paved. My townsmen have all heard the tradition. The oldest people tell me that they heard it in their youth. That anciently, the Indians were holding a powwow upon a hill here, which rose as high into the heavens as the pond now sinks deep into the earth. And they used much profanity, as the story goes, though this vice is one of which the Indians were never guilty. And while they were thus engaged, the hill shook and suddenly sank. And only one old squaw, named Walden, escaped, and from her the pond was named. It has been conjectured that when the hill shook, these stones rolled down its side and became the present shore. It is very certain, at any rate, that once there was no pond here, and now there is one. And this fable does not in any respect conflict with the account of that ancient settler whom I have mentioned, who remembers so well when he first came here with his divining rod, saw a thin vapor rising, and the hazel pointed steadily downward, and he concluded to dig a well here. As for the stones, many still think that they are hardly to be accounted for by the action of the waves on these hills. But I observe that the surrounding hills are remarkably full of the same kind of stones, so that they have been obliged to pile them up in walls on both sides of the railroad, cut nearest the pond. And moreover, there are most stones where the shore is most abrupt, so that, unfortunately, it is no longer a mystery to me. I detect the paver. If the name was not derived from that of some English locality, Saffron Walden, for instance, one might suppose that it was originally called Walled-In Pond. The pond was my well ready dug. For four months in the year, its water is as cold as it is pure at all times. And I think that it is then as good as any, if not the best in the town. In the winter, all water which is exposed to the air is colder than springs and wells which are protected from it. The temperature of the pond water which had stood in the room where I sat from five o'clock in the afternoon till noon the next day, the 6th of the March, 1846, the thermometer having been up to 65 degrees or 70 degrees some of the time, owing partly to the sun on the roof, was 42 degrees or one degree colder than the water of one of the coldest wells in the village just drawn. The temperature of the boiling spring the same day was 45 degrees, or the warmest of any water tried, though it is the coldest that I know of in summer, when beside shallow and stagnant surface water is not mingled with it. Moreover, in summer, Walden never becomes so warm as most water which is exposed to the sun on account of its depth. In the warmest weather, I usually placed a pailful in my cellar, where it became cool in the night and remained so during the day, though I also resorted to a spring in the neighborhood. It was as good when a week old as the day it was dipped and had no taste of the pump. Whoever camps for a week in summer by the shore of a pond 
needs only bury a pail of water a few feet deep in the shade of his camp to be independent of the luxury of ice. There have been caught in Walden, Pickerel, one weighing seven pounds, to say nothing of another which carried off a reel with great velocity, which the fisherman safely set down at eight pounds because he did not see him. Perch and pouts, some of each weighing over two pounds, shiners, chivins or roach, a very few breams, and a couple of eels, one weighing four pounds. I am thus particular because the weight of the fish is commonly its only title to fame. But these are the only eels I've heard of here. Also, I have a faint recollection of a little fish some five inches long, with silvery sides and a greenish back, somewhat dace-like in its character, which I mentioned here chiefly to link my facts to fable. Nevertheless, this pond is not very fertile in fish. Its pickerel, though not abundant, are its chief boast. I have seen at one time lying on the ice pickerel of at least three different kinds, a long and shallow one, steel-coloured, most like those caught in the river, a bright golden kind with greenish reflections and remarkably deep, which is the most common here, and another golden-coloured and shaped like the last, but peppered on the sides with small dark brown or black spots, intermixed with a few faint blood-red ones, very much like trout. The specific name, reticulatus, would not apply to this. It should be gutatis, rather. These are all very firm fish and weigh more than their size promises. The shiners, pouts, and perch also, and indeed all the fishes which inhabit this pond, are much cleaner, handsomer, and firmer fleshed than those in the river and most other ponds, as the water is purer and they can be easily distinguished from them. There is also a clean race of frogs and tortoises, and a few mussels in it. Muskrats and minks leave their traces about it, and occasionally a travelling mud turtle visits it. Sometimes when I pushed off my boat in the morning, I disturbed a great mud turtle, which had secreted himself under the boat in the night. Ducks and geese frequent it in the spring and fall. The white-bellied swallows skim over it, and the peetweets teeter along its stony shores all summer. I have sometimes disturbed a fishhawk sitting on a white pine over the water, but I doubt if it is ever profaned by the wind of a gull like Fairhaven. At most, it tolerates one annual loon. These are all the animals of consequence which frequent it now. You may see from a boat in calm weather, near the sandy eastern shore, where the water is eight or ten feet deep, and also in some other parts of the pond, some circular heaps, half a dozen feet in diameter by a foot in height, consisting of small stones less than a hen's egg in size, where all round is bare sand. At first you wonder if the Indians could have formed them on the ice for any purpose, and so when the ice melted they sank to the bottom, but they are too regular, and some of them plainly too fresh for that. They are similar to those found in rivers, but as there are no suckers or lampreys here, I know not by what fish these could be made. Perhaps they are the nests of the chivin. These lend a pleasing mystery to the bottom. The shore is irregular enough not to be monotonous. 
I have in my mind's eye the western, indented with deep bays, the bolder northern, and the beautifully scalloped southern shore, where successive capes overlap each other and suggest unexplored coves between. The forest has never so good a setting, nor is so distinctly beautiful as when seen from the middle of a small lake amid hills which rise from the water's edge, for the water in which it is reflected not only makes the best foreground in such a case, but with its winding shore, the most natural and agreeable boundary to it. There is no rawness nor imperfection in its edge there, as where the axe is cleared apart, or a cultivated field abuts on it. The trees have ample room to expand on the water side, and each sends forth its most vigorous branch in that direction. There nature has woven a natural selvage, and the eye rises by just gradations from the low shrubs of the shore to the highest trees. There are few traces of man's hand to be seen. The water laves the shore as it did a thousand years ago. A lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is Earth's eye, looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. The trees next to the shore are the slender eyelashes which fringe it, and the wooded hills and cliffs around are its overhanging brows. Standing on the smooth, sandy beach at the east end of the pond, in a calm September afternoon, when a slight haze makes the opposite shoreline indistinct, I have seen whence came the expression, the glassy surface of a lake. When you invert your head, it looks like a thread of finest gossamer stretched across the valley and gleaming against the distant pine wood, separating one stratum of the atmosphere from another. You would think that you could walk dry under it to the opposite hills, and that the swallows which skim over might perch on it. Indeed, they sometimes dive below this line, as it were by mistake, and are undeceived. As you look over the pond westward, you are obliged to employ both your hands to defend your eyes against the reflected as well as the true sun, for they are equally bright. And if, between the two, you survey its surface critically, it is literally as smooth as glass, except where the skater insects, at equal intervals scattered over its whole extent, by their motions in the sun, produce the finest imaginable sparkle on it, or perchance a duck plumes itself, or as I have said, a swallow skims so low as to touch it. It may be that, in the distance, a fish describes an arc of three or four feet in the air, and there is one bright flash where it emerges, and another where it strikes the water. Sometimes the whole silvery arc is revealed, or, here and there, perhaps, is a thistle-down floating on its surface, where the fishes dart at, and so dimple it again. It is like molten glass cooled but not congealed, and the few motes in it are pure and beautiful like the imperfections in glass. You may often detect a yet smoother and darker water, separated from the rest as if by an invisible cobweb, boom of the water nymphs resting on it. From a hilltop you can see a fish leap in almost any part, for not a pickerel or shiner picks an insect from this smooth surface, but it manifestly disturbs the equilibrium of the whole lake. It is wonderful with what elaborateness this simple fact is advertised, 
this Piscine murder will out, and from my distant perch I distinguished the circling undulations when there are half a dozen rods in diameter. You can even detect a water bug ceaselessly progressing over the smooth surface a quarter of a mile off, for they furrow the water slightly, making a conspicuous ripple bounded by two diverging lines. But the skaters glide over it without rippling it perceptibly. When the surface is considerably agitated, there are no skaters nor water bugs on it, but apparently, in calm days, they leave their havens and adventurously glide forth from the shore by short impulses till they completely cover it. It is a soothing employment on one of those fine days in the fall when all the warmth of the sun is fully appreciated. To sit on a stump on such a height as this, overlooking the pond, and study the dimpling circles which are incessantly inscribed on its otherwise invisible surface amid the reflected skies and trees. Over this great expanse there is no disturbance, but it is thus at once gently smoothed away and assuaged, as when a vase of water is jarred. The trembling circles seek the shore, and all is smooth again. Not a fish can leap or an insect fall in the pond, but it is thus reported in circling dimples and lines of beauty, as it were the constant welling up of its fountain, the gentle pulsing of its life, the heaving of its breast. The thrills of joy and thrills of pain are undistinguishable. How peaceful the phenomena of the lake. Again, the works of man shine as in the spring. Every leaf and twig and stone and cobweb sparkles now at mid-afternoon, as when covered with dew in a spring morning. Every motion of an oar or an insect produces a flash of light. Or if an oar falls, how sweet the echo. In such a day, in September or October, Walden is a perfect forest mirror set round with stones as precious to my eyes as if fewer or rarer. Nothing so fair, so pure, and at the same time so large as a lake, perchance, lies on the surface of the earth. Skywater. It needs no fence. Nations come and go without defiling it. It is a mirror which no stone can crack, whose quicksilver will never wear off, whose gilding nature continually repairs. No storms, no dust, can dim its surface, ever fresh. A mirror in which all impurity presented to its sinks, swept and dusted by the sun's hazy brush. This, the light dust cloth, which retains no breath that is breathed on it, but sends its own to float as clouds high above its surface and be reflected in its bosom still. A field of water betrays the spirit that is in the air. It is continually receiving new life and motion from above. It is intermediate in its nature between land and sky. On land only the grass and trees wave, but the water itself is rippled by the wind. I see where the breeze dashes across it by the streaks or flakes of light. It is remarkable that we can look down on its surface. We shall, perhaps, look down thus on the surface of air at length and mark where a still subtler spirit sweeps over it. The skaters and waterbugs finally disappear in the latter part of October, when the severe frosts have come. And then, and in November, usually in a calm day, 
There's absolutely nothing to ripple the surface. One November afternoon, in the calm, at the end of a rainstorm of several days' duration, when the sky was still completely overcast and the air was full of mist, I observed that the pond was remarkably smooth, so that it was difficult to distinguish its surface. Though it no longer reflected the bright tints of October, but the somber November colors of the surrounding hills. Though I passed over it as gently as possible, the slight undulations produced by my boat extended almost as far as I could see and gave a ribbed appearance to the reflections. But as I was looking over the surface, I saw here and there, at a distance, a faint glimmer, as if some skater insects which had escaped the frosts might be collected there or perchance the surface, being so smooth, betrayed where a spring welled up from the bottom. Paddling gently to one of these places, I was surprised to find myself surrounded by myriads of small perch, about five inches long, of a rich bronze colour in the green water, sporting there, and constantly rising to the surface and dimpling it, sometimes leaving bubbles on it. In such transparent and seemingly bottomless water, reflecting the clouds, I seemed to be floating through the air as in a balloon, and their swimming impressed me as a kind of flight or hovering, as if they were a compact flock of birds passing just beneath my level on the right or left, their fins like sails set all around them. There were many such schools in the pond, apparently improving the short season before winter would draw an icy shutter over their broad skylight, sometimes giving to the surface an appearance as if a slight breeze struck it or a few raindrops fell there. When I approached carelessly and alarmed them, they made a sudden splash and rippling with their tails, as if one had struck the water with a brushy bow and instantly took refuge in the depths. At length the wind rose, the mist increased, and the waves began to run, and the perch leaped much higher than before, half out of water, a hundred black points, three inches long, at once above the surface. Even as late as the 5th of December one year, I saw some dimples on the surface, and thinking it was going to rain hard immediately, the air being full of mist, I made haste to take my place at the oars and row homeward. Already the rain seemed rapidly increasing, though I felt none on my cheek and I anticipated a thorough soaking. But suddenly, the dimples ceased, for they were produced by the perch, which the noise of my oars had seared into the depths, and I saw their schools dimly disappearing, so I spent a dry afternoon after all. Good night. <laughs>